Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Chicago Justice Podcast. I am your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also the founder and executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. On today's show, we are featuring a conversation with Sharon Fairley, who is a professor from practice at the University of Chicago Law School, a former federal prosecutor, and a former chief administrator of both the Independent Police Review Authority and the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. Sharon authored an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune on June 3rd titled, Police Reform Steps That Must Be Taken Immediately. We'll be diving deep into the suggestions Sharon put forth, as well as discussing some police reforms Mayor Lightfoot herself has outlined. But first, I would like to comment on the growing evidence that Chicago's new police superintendent is really not bringing anything new to the table. In fact, all I can think about when I read one of his new ideas is the Humphrey Bogart quote from Casablanca, play it again, Sam. If you think Chicago has seen all his bright new ideas played out over the last 20 years, you would be correct. They have all pretty much been implemented by previous superintendents and they have all failed. Miserably, I might add. Candidate Lightfoot's rhetoric certainly is not matching what we have seen in policy from Mayor Lightfoot. The selection of David Brown was very troublesome from the beginning. He does not have a history of integrity. He does have a history of being hostile to the media. Unfortunately, I believe this week's issues with the Chicago Police Department pulling down arrest data just to a short time later making the data available via the city's data portal is a perfect example. It seems like Brown did not like the fact that the Chicago reporter analyzed the data for a report that was not complementary to the CPD's tactics. This is just the type of move I was warned that Brown would pull in Chicago from sources I have in Dallas. It seems like he's had a history of just the same behavior from his time in Dallas. This, of course, makes you wonder why Lightfoot picked him to lead the department in the first place. Trust me, this is a question we're going to keep asking ourselves. In his most recent move, Brown is bringing back roving citywide saturation teams, so Phil Klein of him. If there is one consistency in Chicago, it is just how often these citywide units go rogue and end up engaging in massive misconduct resulting in huge scandals. Brown's twist on this roving unit is making it somewhat community policing focus. So this unit seems like it will be splitting time between enforcement and community focus project. Of course, Brown has not been forced to detail how this is actually going to reduce crime and violence in Chicago. The reason he is not coming straight out and detailing how it's going to reduce shootings in Chicago is because he has no idea how it's going to, and certainly no science to back up his claims. Blythewood also hasn't been forced to justify this move towards more roving units after a long history of their spectacular failure decade after decade in Chicago. Brown and Lightfoot are both huge proponents of the concept of community policing, so Brown is working to revive it in Chicago. Unfortunately for Chicago's community, there is no evidence over previous attempts at community policing had any impact on crime and violence in Chicago. But that isn't stopping our mayor or our police superintendent from bringing it back. Brown has even gone so far to create an advisory panel focused on community policing made up of national experts in the field. Now, this line is totally loaded. There's definitely one national expert, Tracy Mears from Yale Law, but I'm not sure if he's ever studied community policing in depth or at all. The other expert they cite is Wes Skogan from Northwestern University. All you need to know about Skogan, you can learn from our all you need to know about Skogan, you can learn from a horrific study he authored to support the work of ceasefire. In my blog series on the topic, which you can find on our website, I call this study 
voodoo academics because of just how little it was based on rigorous analysis. After my blog series, Ceasefire stopped citing the study to support the work because of just how thoroughly I was able to damage its credibility. Now, we turn to our conversation with Sharon Fairley. This is an interview from our Facebook Live series that occurs most Wednesdays from 12 to 1 Central. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Tracy Siska. I'm Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project. Welcome to our Facebook Live interview series. Today, we have as our guest Sharon Fairley, who is a professor from practice at the University of Chicago Law School. She's also a former federal prosecutor and former chief administrator at the Civilian Office of Police Accountability and previous to that, the Independent Police Review Authority. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. So one of the reasons, besides her vast experience in uh, police accountability, specifically in Chicago, I also wanted to talk to Sharon because of a op-ed or commentary she just published or had published in the Chicago Tribune, which is titled Police Reform Steps that must be taken immediately in Chicago. So before we get exactly to her recommendations, um, and we're gonna talk a little bit about defunding the police and what that means and what that could look like um, in front end versus back end, but I do wanna first start out with some, get her comments about some of the reforms um, announced, I guess, by Mayor Lightfoot in the first 90 days. So she came on to a couple of different, couple of different ones. One is about increasing better training and getting the community involved in the academy and bringing them in so that cadets will get a better understanding of the history of the communities and who they're who are living in the communities they're patrolling what are your feelings on that is a re- one of the first recommendations so i think that i think that's a really important idea i mean so you know the training is just one of the biggest themes and one of the biggest goals for reform here you know there's a lot in the consent decree about what needs to happen with training. Um, you know, training is one of the reasons I believe uh, why the department sort of fell behind is because training was kind of an afterthought for, for decades, really. Um, and so, um, and, and particularly emphasis on training that involves the community. I think that that's just a really big opportunity. We see that having a lot of success in other jurisdictions. And so I would definitely support trying that here. Okay, I have, I've always been bothered by, and I've had some officers talk to me, and I want your comments on it because it's on the subject of training. There wasn't, at least in the police accountability report and what I hear from officers, there wasn't mandatory retraining or mandatory training every year for officers. And I had, um, I have some friends on the job in Chicago, and one of them commented to me, he's like, I don't understand why we're not like the FBI. He goes, I've worked with them on some of the teams I've been on. And from what they tell me, they get mandatory use of force refreshers every year. And he thinks that's part of the reason. He thinks there's a fear within the department by officers to actually physically put their hands on anyone now. Because especially as they get further and further away from the academy, because they're not getting refreshers in that. And he thinks that leads to bad situations. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think so. Use of force training is really a huge, huge priority. And it's the fact that it's necessary and also the nature of it. So if you think about it, when you have these critical incidents as they happen, these street, these street level encounters, they, they're very, they happen very quickly and officers have to react and, you know, in very changing and, you know, intense circumstances. And that requires skills that are kept up. And if you don't keep up those skills in terms of how to react in the right way, 
then, you know, th that's when bad things can happen. And so the idea that, you know, officers could sort of leave the training academy after they've gone through the first time and never come back to work on those skills, that, I mean, that's part of why we're, we're having the problems that we're having. So now, really, what's really kind of state-of-the-art is scenario-based training, like not just like, you know, sitting in front of a PowerPoint screen, but actually you know, having officers train on different kinds of scenarios so that they learn how to react in the right manner. So this is really an important part of what's got to happen. So and at least that leads us, we're going to go down the training rabbit hole for a minute. Sure. I've, I've been supportive, I personally, that when Mayor Lightfoot or others or Rahm Emanuel came out and said, we need a new police academy. I think I know there's protests against investing anything, and I understand those arguments about any and for investing anything in policing. I think it's partially a missed opportunity by reformers and critics of the department and communities to not tie, first of all, build them a new academy, because I do think the academy's facilities are under, um, are not what they need to be to train a professional 21st century force, but also with that to not mandate not only really revolutionizing the training, but also higher standards for accountability on the street should go hand in hand. If we're going to invest in this training, $100, $150 million, then there ought to be really significant increases in the standards for which we're going to hold you now that we're giving you this new training. Yeah, so I know there's been, there's been this debate about, you know, the investment in the training academy, but I, I agree with exactly what you said, Tracy, is that the facility that, that currently exists is woefully inadequate and not anywhere near, you know, what's state of the art. You know, this is the second largest police department in the country, and we, we should have best in class everything. Um, and so, that you know, that takes money. Now, you know, whether that is worthy of a $95 million investment? I can't answer that question, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what is the appropriate amount to invest that makes sense relatively off to all the other issues that we, where we could invest our money as, as a community. Um, but it is, it is an important thing to bring the facility up to date. And I hear what you're saying about, you know, well, if we're going to give them this resource, then we're going to expect them to actually you know, use the skills in the way that they're trained. And accountability to me is really the biggest theme of, of reform. It's been historically the challenge uh, of the mm -hmm. department for decades, right? I mean, if you go back literally to 1904, the early 1900s, there's, there's tons of documentation of disciplinary issues at the department. And those carry through all through the 19th century, you know, as we know. So, you know, looking at where we are now, it's really helpful to sort of go back and see kind of how we got to where we are today, right? And accountability is a big, is a big part of that issue. I, I couldn't agree more with you said about the history. I know when the, under Jody Weiss, he wanted to bring in M4 assault rifles. And we met with him. I was part of a coalition that met with him. And, and we met with you while you were head of IPRA. Um, and we met with Jody Weiss. And I asked them one question. I said, at one point, we met with a bunch of his deputies. At one point, you had shotguns in the car. Does anyone in this room know why you took shotguns out? And they got, a couple of his officers got ferociously upset with me. Mm -hmm. And one 
of the people from the Academy didn't. And I know why he didn't, because he authored a letter to Jody Weiss begging him not to put assault rifles in and to give him, if he were going to do it, give them a year to develop the training. So there was one officer in that room who did not, but they were ferocious. What does that mean? What does it have to do with anything? I'm like, well, if you're going to increase the firepower, you're given average officers. You'd think you'd want to learn from the last time you did it. And obviously something went wrong because you took the shotguns out of the cars. Mm. You would like to know why. And they seemed completely, not only oblivious, but could not care less about learning what they had previously happened in the department. Yeah, well, you know, the whole concept of the militarization of the police, right? I mean, that's just, you know, that was, that happened, right? I mean, that's not just here, that's everywhere across the country. We have this trend in the 60s and 70s where we just continue to sort of create this militaristic environment and structure by adopting these kinds of weapons, but also just the mentality, which created this kind of us versus them mentality, um, and then, and it, and it sort of dovetails with the idea of why we're having problems with use of force, right? Because what, 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 what are military guys do, right? They're allowed to do violence, right? That's, that's their job, right? And so by creating this sort of militaristic culture, it's created part of the problems that we have today in terms of the way uh, policing is being conducted and, you know, why people are feeling over-policed. So we're going to move on to two, I, in the coverage, Lightfoot has them connected, and maybe they are connected, but I want to talk on them a little bit separately. And that's impl- in, she talks about implementing a wellness program for officers, and then connects that to an early intervention system. And I, I am fully, I've been fully in favor of an early warning. I mean, I guess she calls it early intervention system, but, you know, the language nationally, I think that's more for PR, but the language nationally in the police accountability system is an early warning system. Correct. And I guess we can talk about them. Together. I see, I don't think officers understand. I see the Jason Van Dyke and the murder of Laquan McDonald. I see that as a failure of the police department, not just in the cover-up, but the fact that he had 27 complaints that we know of. I think there's a five-year gap in, in a time period when we don't know if he had any more complaints. And there was never really an intervention done to figure out why he was accumulating all those complaints and see if they could do anything. Like if that was heading on a trajectory towards disaster. And I think those types of things, that's why I'm in favor of an only warning system. And I I guess Lightfoot's right, right. Tying it to the wellness program. But I I think, you know, I, I would bet my bet is the FOP is going to the police union is going to be completely against this idea. But I think it's, I don't think they think about it right. I think there's really an opportunity with things like this to maybe have an intervention that isn't punitive, that's helpful, that maybe saves us an incident and saves that that officer's career and in Jason Van Dyke's life right now, his freedom. So I'd like to have you talk about those two things a little bit. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm definitely in, in, um, in support of an early warning system or an early intervention system. Um, I think it's really important to help, and like you said, to try to kind of uh, help those officers who are starting down the wrong path and give them the right training um, that can help them sort of reel them back in. Um, you know, a lot of what we're dealing with, I think, Tracy, is our cult, you know, there are results of the culture of the organization. And, you know, it's a culture that has evolved over decades, as I mentioned, and it's going to be hard to 
change that culture overnight. We're talking about an organization of 13,000 people. Um, and so we have to do things like have an early warning system to help to, to sort of help, you know, address these cultural deficits when we where we can find them and 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 really work to, to do it. The other thing that's really important, though, obviously, is a very effective and consistently effective accountability system. And that's part of what's been missing as well, mm. which is why we're having the problems that we're having. You know, I've had, I, let's, let's talk a little bit about the culture because you brought it up. You know, I was out, I have another friend on the force and I met him for a drink and one of his buddies came from the department and I asked him what he did and he goes, I do paperwork. I'm like, what? He goes, I'm so sick of dealing with bosses that have no idea how to manage anything and they're there because they know someone, not because of their experience. So it's not like I can go to them and ask them questions or learn from them that I'd rather just be, I'm going to serve my time off the street filing paper. I'm not going to risk my life for these guys who have no, mostly men who have no idea what they're doing. And so I, I think that breeds into this, the parts of the problems with the culture is that a lot of the force, like especially the patrol division of the de department, they don't have a lot of faith in their bosses and in management. And it's hard. Um, I used to say about the PhD, the closer you get to it, and the more you see the, some of the real research that some of the professors who were teaching you do, and you see that it's not of the quality you thought it was, the more disdain you have for the, for the degree, unfortunately. And I think that's a problem with the police also, is that they see promotions from people and clout promotions and the, this uh, merit list, and they see people that have risen because of connections, and... They, they, they don't take them as credible leaders. Do you think that's a problem? I mean, I think that could be part of it. And, you know, when I think of culture and, you know, it really comes from the top down. And so that's why, you know, we're in a period where we really need leadership who can step up to the plate and walk the walk and talk the talk. Because if you have, you know, you can have a great superintendent, right, that's all committed to reform. But if his, you know, if his next level down you know, are a bunch of commanders who are rolling their eyes saying this is all BS when, when, we, when we talk about reform, reform is going to go nowhere. So we, you know, we need the culture to start at the top and then really filter down so that, you know, it, you know officers are being held accountable, you know, at all levels throughout the organization. And that, that's, that's going to take a lot of work on the, part of, on the part of the new superintendent and the leadership team that he puts together. Yeah, I'm very curious to see who that leadership team that he, put, that he constructs around him is. I remember when Jody Weiss came in, he pretty much cleared the management team out. And it ruffled unbelievable amount of feathers. It also, I think, ruffled in conversations. I think uh, Mayor Lightfoot has thought some of that was a mistake. But I, I saw it as, how can you come in and be trying to change the culture if you're going to leave in all the people that most of the people in the department don't have respect for at those levels. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. exactly. Okay. So what do you see as the benefits to a wellness program for the officers? Cause you know, there's a lot of talk about that their what they have to see every day and how that impacts them sure. and results in bad things down the road. Yeah. Um, it's a hard job. It's a hard job. There's no, I mean, you know, there's no other way to describe it. It's a very intense, hard job. And they do, you know, they're under a lot of stress, you know, when they're out on the street um, and they see a lot. I mean, you know, I spent two years working on police accountability and, you know, reviewing, you know, cases and 
it took, it took a toll on me, you know, emotionally and physically um, being involved in that space. And so I get that. And so I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, police reform and getting the department operating in a way that we as a community think is healthy and productive, um, that includes supporting them and, you know, giving them the training and the resources for them to be able to do their jobs well, right? Um, and so we, and we also want to create a department. We want to attract the right kinds of people into this work. And so that means that we should have programs that support them and give them the skills and support and resources that they need to stay healthy and to be able to do the job well. I think wellness is a big part of that. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. The next couple issues that Mayor Lightfoot brings up is things that I've never understood, um, especially the first one, why it wasn't mandated to every officer and it was they only it was optional and I've been told all along it was strictly a financial reason but Mayor Lightfoot talks about mandatory crisis intervention training right and I have never understood we've talked I was in meetings with Jody Weiss and McCarthy um through the coalition I was part of and we would talk to them about that in the department we talked to a head of internal affairs and they would always brag they thought they were bragging about the number when they were able to say well 1,500 of the 13,000 officers have crisis intervention training. Right. So this is, you know, this has been a, an important topic for, for, for a while. And the reason is, is because if you look at the percentage of, you know, calls for police service, there's a very, very significant percentage that involve individuals in mental health crisis. And we've seen all too often how those encounters, once the police show up, can go off the rails, right? Someone calls to say, you know, my mother, my brother, sister, you name it, you know, is having some trouble. Can you just help me, you know, can you just come and help me get them, you know, to the hospital where they can be treated? And then someone ends up getting hurt, you know, shot or, you know, mm -hmm. hurt. And, and it's just happened all too often. So, you know, crisis intervention, you know, the, the theory behind it, the programming behind it has been, you know, tested and proven time and time again. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a doctrine of policing that we know is important. It works. And so we want people to be trained on it. When they first brought the program out, it was voluntary, right? And, and, the, and the reason they made it voluntary is because they thought, well, you know, we, we want the people, the officers who really believe in this to, to be the ones who get the training because, you know, it's kind of, if you force it down everybody's throats, then, you know, maybe they're not really going to really accept these ideals. And that's kind of silly in my, in my estimation because, you know, you do need to train officers how to react to these situations. You need, you need officers who understand, for example, that a person who's in mental health crisis may not be able to interpret the directions that an officer is giving them, mm -hmm. right? Or may not be able to comply with direction that an officer is being given them because of what they're experiencing and that they're not being non-responsive because they're being belligerent but because they are in a mental health crisis. So we need to give that officers that kind of exposure to those kinds of concepts. And, and, and also we need it reflected throughout the system. Like if you recall, you may recall what happened with the uh, Quintonio Legrier incident, yep. right? So here we have an individual who, you know, we obviously we have the benefit of hindsight now. We know he was in mental health crisis, but there were three calls made to 911, right? Where, um, it became clear, at least in my view, that there was something going on there that the dispatcher could have 
taken that information and relayed that information to the officers who were responding to that incident so that they would be aware and be prepared more or better prepared to deal with what they might encounter. Right. And so this is this is a really important aspect of the system that we've got to now push out through everywhere. Um, and then also another trend that we're seeing, which is, I think, really important and a good thing that the department has done, is that in their most recent use of force policies, they're actually giving some specific guidance in the use of force policy about dealing with people in mental health crisis. And we're starting to see that pop up in use of force policies in other jurisdictions as well. This is a very good development in my view. We had on the show last week, Barry Friedman from the Policing Project sure, at, yeah. at, at NYU Law. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a great article about um, disaggregating all the police functions and questioning and like forcing in questioning, are the police the best people to do this? Because let's be honest, I'm sure you know through your work, we leave way too many things. We lay too many things at the feet of the police and say, settle this. Right. We cut all our schools. We cut our mental health clinics. There's mm-hmm. no jobs. There's rampant intergenerational poverty. Take care of that. Make sure everyone stays safe and there's no violence or drug dealing. To me, it's just where I, I think in a lot of those situations, we're setting up the police department as a whole just to fail from the start. But he, he brings up a point about, especially around mental health, responding to mental health issues, is that sometimes, depending on the call, where there isn't an immediate notice of violence, that maybe a guy with a gun being the first person to that door, or a person with a gun, the first person at that door in a uniform, is not the best response. Mm-hmm. And maybe there are ways that we could stand up other social services and this is, you know, you get, we're not going to go down the rabbit hole at the moment about defunding the police, but whether or not we're, you know, I, I'm not sure if the officers are going to accept it, but it's quite possible we're setting them up on a lot of these calls for mm-hmm. mental health issues to fail because the very presence of them in the uniform and the gun provokes violence rather than calming the situation. Yeah. And so I think that this is a really interesting area that, you know, we're seeing a lot of exploration right now. So there are communities who've actually tried this, right? So when you think about when people say abolish the police, right, or defund the police, there are communities that have tried to create this sort of alternative response system, right, to specifically address individuals in in mental health crisis, where instead of calling 911, where you get somebody showing up with a gun, you get this group of trained crisis response people, mental health professionals, members of the community who, who are, have been trained on how to respond to these incidents and, and finding that the outcomes are, are, are much better, right? Um, and so I think this is a really great area of exploration right now and definitely something that we should be thinking about here in Chicago. Yeah, I have, um, I, I, we argued with the department and its leaders that we did not understand why so few officers were trained Sources high up in the department kept telling me it's all, it's just about money. They really don't want to pay the cost. And I understand. Go ahead. Yeah, that's part of it too, because, you know, anytime you take an officer off the street to bring him in for training and it's, it was a, it's like a four week training or no, it's a 16 hour training, you know, that costs, right? Because then you've got to put somebody else out on the street and maybe you have to pay them overtime. So there is a cost associated with that training. You're absolutely right. We're, as a country, as you can see, especially right now, we're incredibly short-sighted, right? Like, right. I think that, you know, the city leadership that say, wow, we're paying out and we have an ordinance sitting in the legislative office still that for some right. reason isn't making it out about re- redesigning the whole legislative response to police settlements and judgments. But as part of that, the, I think the mayor should, 
sit down with leaders from social services and the department and say, listen, we are spending 30 or 20 or 30 or 40, 50 million dollars a year paying out civil settlements for policing. Right. How can we stand up and invest in other things that might be costly right now, but in five, seven, eight, 10 years could maybe save us 30 or 40 million dollars a year? I, I don't think as a society, especially as a city, that we're very good at that long term investment strategy to find solutions. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that what's, I think, encouraging to me about the dialogue that's going on about policing and investment and policing and investment in communities, you know, and there's a dialogue that's happening in cities across the country right now, which is, you know, how do we invest our community funds to most efficiently deal with the problems that we have? And sometimes it may not be necessarily investing more in policing, right? And so even our very own uh, University of Chicago Crime Lab, you know, based on their research, you know, they have shown that to deal with the violent crime problem, it, you know, you, maybe you don't invest more dollars in police, but the investment in education, jobs, job programs, and other social wraparound services, maybe those are actually better investments in terms of helping to reduce the violent crime problem we have. And so we need to start having these conversations and also trying to be more evidence-based about how we're investing our, our resources. So when you talk, we were just talking about the whole thing about, you know, mental health, right? So I think part of the problem, why we started to have sort of a problem with it is we know the mental health hospitals in the city, there were so many that were shut down. There were so few that were able to take to take individuals in crisis when police got them that the police were like, they would have to sit and wait for hours while someone was being, you know, you know going through intake to the hospital. And so, so they'd rather than just take the person to jail because then, you know, they take quicker. them, they drop them off and, and they're done with it, right? And so it just created this, you know, crazy problem. And so maybe we need, what we need to do is instead of investing more money in police that can get mental people in mental health crisis off the street, we invest more in our mental health system. Right. And, and that may be a better way of taking care of the problem. So we, we need to start having these conversations and trying to understand, you know, what's really working, where can we learn from other cities who have tried different things and can apply some of those learnings and test our way into figuring out what's the best way to invest in our community. Yeah, I never understood. I mean, I thought it was completely short-sighted. When Mayor Daly closed those mental health clinics, it was so badly, it was such a bad idea that a police blog, which I will not mention, but I'm sure you know well, even said, what are you doing? Right. You have just devastated. You have set us up for failure. You have devastated our work environment. You shouldn't be cutting it. You should be adding to it. Now you're, all of this is for, oh, you're leaving this all at our feet. And I thought, wow, that's my political views and their political views matching up on something. It must be a really bad idea to do this. And honestly, I think that we could probably do some research and tie what we're dealing with today to decisions around that and closing all kinds of social, resource, social resources, social institutions in those very same communities. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't understand how we expect people who are unfortunately living in such poverty and then dealing with mental health issues, and they're supposed to go across the city to get treatment. It would. It would seem to me it's all in our interest to have community-based treatment available to them um, on a on-call basis. Sure. But that's just my thing. So, okay. I, the last recommendation from uh, Mayor Lightfoot, I think, is more 
filled with rhetoric than actually defined well. And I'm going to read it as she was quoted, establishing a new recruit program on pol police community relations and community policing with views from the community about what works. The views with the community about what works, I like that idea, although their views can somehow be out of line with what the science actually shows because they may have had a bad experience or something. I really think we need to come with a firm definition of what community policing is, right? Yeah. Because there's view in the 90s when it was established in early 2000s, while community policing really changed Chicago. Mm -hmm. Well, before it started, violence was going down three or 4% a year nationwide. Right. And then once it was started, it continued and it continued right up until around 2015. And I don't think there's any evidence to prove since it was a nationwide event and community policing was centrally focused in Chicago, that community policing had anything to do with it. We're doing research and we'll release something later this summer about how few people were actually involved in community policing in Chicago. So mm -hmm. that's my, that's my rift on community policing. When you hear that, I'm all for the new community reprove program and police community relations. I think that's great. But what, what does community policing mean to you? You've been involved in the system for some time. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, community policing, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, the sort of um, academic view of what it is. And, you know, there's certain components where, you know, it's about community and police coming together to problem solve, right. To identify problems and then identify solutions together, right. Is, is part of the concept. Um, and then it's also part about sort of, you know, having this general understanding of, between officers and the community. Um, I think that, you know, you know, and in community policing is, you know, one of the big themes in the consent decree, by the way. And so there are all these steps that, you know, the, the, the department is making to sort of get back towards its, this sort of programmatic view where the idea of community policing is not just sort of a single program that the department operates, but it's more of a philosophy that sort of in, is imbued through the department's entire way of operating. So that that's really, you know, one thought. But, you know, I think what the mayor is referring to is creating at least part of, you know, a, a module or program within the initial training that officers receive before they're sent out into the street um, that introduces them to the ideas of community policing and introduces them to members of the community that they're going to be serving and letting those people have this, a dialogue to start to, to get familiar with each other. I mean, it's, it's part of the problem, I think, is we're sending recruits out, you know, into communities that they're not familiar with, um, with, into cultures that they're not familiar with. And I think what the mayor's trying to recommend is something to help try to bridge that, um, to, to at least give them, you know, while they're at the academy, some exposure to the community that they're gonna be serving so that they can hear how that community wants to be policed. And then that's, I think that could be very helpful. Okay, that, that interaction as you phrase it and frame yeah. it, I, I really love that idea. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there should be, when they get to the district, when the recruits get out of the academy and they get to their district, there should be a introduction to the district and the communities that they're, they're serving because districts are kind of big at times mm -hmm. and they can serve different communities sure. and they can be socially, economically different, even if they are racially homogenous. So um, that I love. So we're going to turn to some of your recommendations in your commentary. And the first one I have very strong feelings on. Okay. Okay. I know while 
before you came and while Scott Ando was working for Alana Rosenzweig as like deputy, deputy chief or whatever his exact phrase was, I had a long phone conversation with him. And I was imploring him to do more pattern and practice stuff that they were missing the forest for the trees on solely investigating, focused on the individual complaint that there was all kinds of meaningful analysis that could be done that could be very educational and make the system a learning system and could lead to policy and practice changes. And our call turned rather, um, he was very unhappy and did not like my suggestions. Mm-hmm. He was very happy just in investigating the solo complaints and as if they weren't part of a larger system or unit or district, which I found pretty appalling. Not as appalling as him being named director, a chief administrator by a community-led group that Ron picked. Um, now, one of those members is an alderman, so we'd have to question that a little bit, even though I like Michael very much. But you talk about how COPA needs to do pattern and practice investigations. And I will say, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, and I'm not sure this has gone public, but I was part of the group of co- concerned citizens and organizations that helped write the COPA ordinance. That's created COPA and the Deputy Inspector General for Public Safety, which I did not want in the Inspector General's office, but that's a whole nother argument. We'll get to that later, um, maybe on when you're up here for the third time. But um, <laughs> What I learned subsequent to the new COPA head coming in was that, and I don't remember her name and I apologize, I should know it. Cindy Roberts. Cindy Roberts coming in. She had conversations with uh, the Inspector General, Joe Ferguson, and she agreed to not do pattern and practice investigations, even though we directly wrote it into the legislation that COPA would have that power. She had four, she's, and they'd entered into some agreement that would that just would leave that power with the inspector general's office and the I guess the office of the deputy public safety inspector general. So I just wanted to say that because I wanted that out for people to know because we were very bothered by it. I mean, the Chicago Coalition for Police Accountability was very unhappy with that. We thought, and I, I think if they wanted to cooperate in that investigation, that would be fine. But it would seem to me that COPA would want to use that data they would uncover in those to help inform their investigations on individual complaints against officers. So I just want your feeling, why did you, why do you think it's important for COPA to have that or use that power that they have? Well, first of all, like if that's actually true, what you said, I'm appalled by that because I fought really hard to get that power for COPA because I felt it was really important. And the reason why I felt that was really important is as the chief administrator of IPRA, there were definitely times where I saw the same kind of case, the same kind of misconduct happening over and over and over again, and felt that COPA needed a way to be able to address that kind of repeated kind of misconduct. To, to find a way to investigate it and then come up with recommendations on how to do it. And the reason why I think that, you know, the COPA should be able to do it is, yes, the inspector general can do audits and review programs, but they have their own agenda. And so I felt that the COPA chief should have the power to identify these you know, common themes that they're seeing and to have the power to investigate and make recommendations because 
that that might be a priority that the COPA chief has that's not as important to the inspector general, right? Because they have their own mission, their own priorities. And so, you know, in the, in the op-ed that I wrote, I specifically said there's an opportunity for COPA to conduct a pattern and practice investigation of how the department handled these, the protests, looking at how the department used force, which is within COPA's jurisdiction, um, and, and then policed the, you know, whether or not they adhered to their own policies about how to police uh, demonstrations, you know, when, they, when they're First Amendment issues. And so um, I think that that is something that's within COPA's jurisdiction and they could do. Now, subsequent to that, we know that the independent monitor is going to be conducting their own investigation. So maybe that will be the sufficient way to have this done, that COPA doesn't need to do it because the monitor is going to be looking at it. But it's certainly within COPA's jurisdiction to do that if they so chose. And so I, I feel like it's a power that they should have. Okay, let me ask you, since we're on this topic, I have always thought that these pattern and practice type investigations should help inform investigations future investigations of similar conduct. And I'm not exactly sure how, but it would seem to me that if you find a particular type of misconduct around a a special team, like I guess there's talk about putting more citywide, but sort of community policing, sort of enforcement, roving units back together. But when there was SOS, the special operations section or the targeted response unit or the deployment operation centers, it would seem to me that after seven or eight complaints from the same unit as they're roving across the city of the same type of misconduct, whatever that be, misuse of the baton, whatever it would be, and it's all consistent. And then you do an investigation to f- prove that. And then when you get complaint 10, 12, 14, 18, and 20, that that type of pattern of practice should help inform your findings in the, when you're in the future solitary uh, investigations of that misconduct. Am, am I, what do you think of that idea? Am I missing something? Yeah, well, there's, I mean, I think that you're right in that, you know, if you have, if you've conducted a pattern of practice investigation, you're going to learn a lot of things, right? You're going to learn facts that may be relevant to a specific case that you find later, such as whether or not the officer was aware that he was not supposed to do that, or connections between officers that, you know, that you know exist that are being denied in a case that you see later. So there's lots of sources of sort of information of evidentiary value that could come from that kind of investigation that might be helpful in in a future inquiry. So I, I see the value of that. Okay, well, that's good. We agree again. So the next thing you turn to in your op-ed is the inspector general doing, or the deputy public safety inspector general doing audits of body cam footage. Yes. So why did you specifically bring that up? Well, I mean, I think that we we all saw a lot of concerning things happening over during the course of the protests as they were happening. And so um, we all also know that many times people, complaints are not filed when someone is the subject of excessive force. They don't bother to file a complaint. So no, if, if, if we've had an incident and no one files a complaint, then there's no way that that's going to be brought to the attention of the people who can investigate that. And so that's why I thought an audit of the body camera footage could be helpful, is to just look to see, to make sure that Number one, officers were reporting their uses of force accurately the way that they should, right? And also just to see how much force was used and whether the policies were adhered to. 
So I think that there could be value to that. I agree with that also. Um, all right, so we're going to turn, oh, no, let's go next to the Illinois Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights. How yeah. would you change that wonderful, incredibly awesome state <laughs> legislation? Oh, so, you know, when, when you, a lot of states have these, right? There's probably, I don't know, 14, 16, somewhere around that states that have these state statutes that provide some due process rights to law enforcement when it comes to disciplinary investigations and disciplinary matters. And I think that these arose, they kind of arose in the 1970s. A lot of the time they're, and you know, we see comparable sort of collective bargaining agreement provisions too. Um, and the, and, and they, they, so the idea is that, you know, officers deserve some due process. And so we want to create some structure around that. But the problem is they obviously become a big hindrance to accountability and so here in Illinois, I would point to a, a few of the key most problematic provisions. So the first thing is the requirement that uh, an officer cannot be investigated for a complaint unless it's a, the complaint is sworn, signed. So it's, this is what's called the affidavit requirement. Yes. We also see that reflected in the collective bargaining agreements um, between the city of Chicago and, and the police unions for Chicago. Um, and so the fact that that affidavit requirement is grounded in state law, I think it makes it a more difficult issue for the city to bargain about. And so I'd like to see that go away. Um, The second thing is that um, in the Illinois statute, there is a five-year statute of limitations for complaints of excessive force. So meaning if there's been a, if there's an officer involved shooting where someone even, even where someone, there was a fatality, if the, if the city does not prosecute the officer for that incident within five years, the most they can do is impose a 30-day suspension on the officer. They can't fire them, for example. And so we knew, we know that, you know, IPRA had a lot of problems with the timeliness of their investigations. And sometimes they would just blow through this five years. And then all you could do is, you know, punish the officer with this 30 day suspension. And so that's a problem. I think it, I think it should go away, particularly anytime um, there's been force used that's resulted in serious injury or death. So that, that's a problem as well. I would like to see that go away. Okay. Let's talk a little more in depth about this affidavit rule. As, mm-hmm. as it's colloquially known, I've had a very, one of my sources that was the highest up in the department. He, you know, we talked about, and he's also an academic. He does academic research. And, mm-hmm. you know, I brought up the affidavit rule and he goes, no, it's awful. Mm-hmm. And he's very, very pro-police, very pro-police. And he said, no, it's awful. And I said, wow, that's interesting because I hate it too, but why do you hate it? And he goes, because it stops us from gathering data about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And we as a police department, and they didn't have an early warning system at that time, to be honest with you. They had gotten rid of it many, many years before. They had actually had one for a very short period of time called, I think it was called Brainmaker, if I'm not mistaken. The union forced the, the actual deletion of it. He's like, no, even if we had an, it would so help inform an early warning system. Because even if the people aren't going to cooperate, just gathering the data about the complaints and us being able to look into them and investigate them, even if it doesn't come to a sustained finding, just having that data is going to help help inform the system. So sure. he was completely against it. And I, I found that to be an interesting view. I don't think, well, let me ask you this. I, I've rambled about that. Let me ask you, how big of an impediment do you view the FOP and the police union contract? Is there a is there a back end accountability system that can be built 
to do what we all wanted to do if the FOP contract is still in place? So there are, there are a number of provisions in the CBAs that are, you know, definitely not helpful when it comes to accountability, right? Um, and so there's just, you know, uh, you know, and many of these things have been talked about. Of course, you know, Mayor Lightfoot in her uh, task force report pointed out, you know, several of the, of the top most problematic ones. So these include the fact that, you know, when, when an officer is interviewed about during a disciplinary investigation, he has to be told in advance who the complainant is and what the nature of the complaint is. So, of course, that gives him a heads up with what, you know, gives him an opportunity to get kind of get his story straight. Then, of course, you know, we have the affidavit requirement with the override provision, but that, that that's a problem. Then we have the provision that says, look, you know, when before you can um, charge an officer with a, you know, a rule 14 violation, which is not being truthful or making a false statement. He has the, he has to have the opportunity to look at the video and then go back and change his statement. Right. And so that, you know, that of course is a problem. There's also the provision that says an officer involved in a, in a shooting incident can't be interviewed until 20 within the first 24 hours. So again, that gives the officer time to sort of work through a statement there. In the meantime, they're perfectly able to talk to their union representatives, right? Who may be mm-hmm. also talking to the other involved officers, right? So, so there, there are a number of, of problematic, you know, provisions that, you know, I think that the city is going to try to negotiate around, but it's going to be a negotiation. Okay, so we're going to talk about one more um, statewide issue, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about defunding the police. I have a yeah. definition of that that I prefer, and it's not the hysterical one. I think we need to get rid of some of the hysterics around the whole discussion because I think that's uh, not productive. What are your feelings on licensing police officers? I know that's been brought up. And I I think for Chicagoans, I'm not sure what impact that would have because I don't see... I don't see there was a big problem with Chicago hiring officers from other jurisdictions that had problems that may not be able to get hired if they were licensed and lost their license. It may help other jurisdictions out of Chicago because officers that had a problem in Chicago and then were on their way to being disciplined and resigned or retired and then go get a job somewhere else, maybe by them being found losing their license because of what happened in Chicago, they can't get any a job somewhere else. But I, I, I have questions about how effective that's going to be as far as accountability in Chicago. So I just want to know your feelings about it. Yeah, so this is, this is a, a topic that's come up. I'm definitely a proponent of trying to explore some reform here. We, we, the system that we have now, right, is officers have to have state certification. And there are certain circumstances through which they can lose their state certification, meaning they cannot be a sworn officer anywhere in the state. But those circumstances are very, very narrow defined, right? So if you have a felony conviction and certain kinds of misdemeanor convictions, then you could could lose your state certification. Um, And so, you know, we all know that sometimes, particularly when it comes to use of force incidents, it is exceedingly difficult to sustain a criminal conviction. They are so rare, right? Because there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, right? These cases are hard to start with. The criminal standard beyond a reasonable doubt is really hard. You know, there's a lot of reasons for that. So there may be circumstances where we really are uncomfortable with the way an officer has conducted themselves and really don't want them being a policeman anymore, but we cannot take their certification away because it doesn't fit this particular 
rubric and that that's in the current state statute. So this is definitely an area that I've been working on with some of my other colleagues um, at the law school and some other subject matter experts who are concerned about this as an issue. Okay. I want to offer a suggestion to the licensing. I think, especially if you look at the Laquan McDonald case, or if you look at the Kochman case with Daly's nephews, both of which resulted, by the way, in Inspector General's investigations. I think if we're going to license officers, I think we need to do something about the retirement, what I call bailout, which means you got your 20 in and the day things turn sour on you, you just leave and you're completely immune from the police accountability system's grasp. And I think that needs to change. You're getting a pension that's funded a lot by taxpayer dollars. If you are at the time, I think it should be, especially for licensing, if you are the subject of an investigation pending or uh, reasonably could see it coming and you want, you're collecting your pension or want to collect your pension, you have to cooperate. You got to continue cooperating in good faith with that investigation and whatever police accountability adjudication, like for the Chicago would be the police board, that process. And if you're found guilty of what we would categorize some serious misconduct and taking part in that, you lose your license and certification and you lose your pension. Because in the Kochman case with Daly, most of those actors just retired. Yes. The Quan McDonald shooting, everyone through the chain that approved or did not turn in or did not say anything when they looked at that video and said it was okay, they just retired. And it's another level of not holding people accountable and seeing we always hold the bottom troops like in the military or in policing, the bottom level people always get held to account for their misconduct and the upper level people never do. So if I, if I had my say in my magic wand, something around the licensing would include them having to cooperate with the, sure. with the accountability system after they leave. So let, tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that that's a really interesting idea because we know that this issue, this has been an issue. We, we've seen so many officers who get put into the accountability system, their cases up at the police board, and then, and then they just retire. They resign or they retire, right? And then, um, and then you know, they get to keep their pension because the pension is a completely separate issue. It right? is. And so that, you know, looking at if there's a way to tie that to the disciplinary system, I think that's an interesting concept. Right. I mean, it would have stopped Burge from getting his pension. Um, you know, right now, the, the uh, one that the, the, the anti-lightfoot forces keep throwing up is Dante Servin. Okay, right. Yeah. She kept letting him stay and he, she let him collect his pension. And I'm like, I think all of that's bad, but she didn't let any, anyone do anything. There are, right. There was nothing they could do. There are laws. We have to follow them. If we're not going to follow them, they certainly are not. Right. Right. So we have to find a way to end that bailout where I can just leave no matter what I've done. Not, you're not bailing on criminal charges, but you are bailing on the entire police accountability system and maybe right. keeping secrets with you as you do that. All right. So we're going to get re- we're going to turn real quickly in the last like seven or eight minutes we have here. Defunding the police. Mm. When I, I attach and I am uh, a kindred spirit on the idea of at the very least having a very serious public discussion about 
what a police, what a new public safety agency in the city of Chicago or any city would look like if we took Professor Friedman's uh, roadmap and questioned every possible, every possible activity of a police officer and whether or not they're the best people to do it. And then we reconceptualized the system that developed those alternatives into our catalog of responses and not got rid of police, but redirected some of the funding to build up those other social services and other responses and took some of the things off their plate. And in my dream version of that, it would free us of the FOP contract because that new public service agency would um, not be restricted by that. And we would have to take, um, I'm all for having them collectively bargain their pay and their benefits because I want them to have that. I'm not anti that, but I'm for having that discussion. I think a little bit, it was a mistake by the mayor to just dismiss it out of hat. Instead of saying we're, we would consider, we're open to consider everything. They're in the middle of negotiations with the FOP. I think the Considering that would put pressure on those negotiations. And if you don't get anything from them, then you can maybe move in another direction. So how do you, what do you feel about the defund the police concepts and discussions? So, so here's, here's my sort of take on this, right? So I, when, I think when you look back historically here in Chicago, and also when you look across the country, figuring out what the right size of a police department is, is just a really complicated question. Mm -hmm. And it becomes too politically easy when you are in a situation where you have a violent crime problem, particularly like the one, the very insidious one that we have here. It becomes just too easy to say, we just need more. We need more. We need more police. We need more money. It just becomes too easy, right? Because then you can say, well, here's what I've done. I've added more police. I've added more resources, right? As, as, a, as, a, as a city leader, you have that to fall back on, right? So now what I think is so great about the conversations that are being had is now we're being, we, we actually see, you know, political leaders and communities taking, giving more deeper thought about how do we more wisely use the resources that we have as a community to deal with the public safety needs that we have. And so these ideas of questioning, do we really need police to do that? I think is fantastic. And as I mentioned earlier, there are communities who are seeing success by trying some of these things, right? Trying to create this you know, crisis response group that's not police to respond to people in mental health crisis. Um, we have, you know, also we're, we've got places like the crime lab doing research showing what if we invested more in education if we invested more in a high school summer jobs program those things would actually do more to, to, to help our crime problem than adding more funding to policing so i think this is a really important these are really important conversations to be had these decisions have to be evidence-based um and may not be something that we can jump into right away we have to maybe try do some trials and test our yep. way into it but i think it's just a really big opportunity Particularly when you hear, you know, part of the challenge that we have here in Chicago is that we have these communities that have clearly just been over-policed, right? They've been over-policed. It's like too much. And so if we're able to dial that back, it will also make communities feel safer. And you, we also know we have things like, you know, uh, last year, the inspector general, you know, did this huge report on how the department was completely overusing overtime. So, I mean, there are a lot, there's a lot to question 
in terms of how we're investing our city funds, you know, in policing and in keeping communities safe, whether we're doing it efficiently and effectively or not. So I, I think these are great conversations that we need to start having. I'm excited about it. I am too. And just to add a little context about hiring police and how easy it is. When Rahm Emanuel made that announcement in September of 2016, that the police department came to him and said they needed a thousand more cops. Well, we've been in a FOIA battle with the police department for the analysis they did. They went to city hall and the days after that announcement and told aldermen, we did a top to bottom analysis. We know exactly how many officers we need and we know exactly where they need to go. We are several months into a year, maybe, into litigation with the Chicago Police Department, one of those for FOIA violations. One of those things is give us that analysis. And what they're trying to tell the court is, we looked as hard as we could, Your Honor, but we just couldn't find it. And they're trying to get the judge to say, oh, okay, you looked hard enough. Not that they never did one, which I'm 99% sure they did. They didn't right? They, they never did it. This was a political decision by Rahm Emanuel to commit to a little over a billion dollars on the old pay scale. That's probably more now. It's one point, a little over a billion dollars to pay those officers just for the first 10 years. Yeah. Pay them, uh, train them, equip them, their pensions. So I, I think people that are anti even having the discussion don't realize how much money we spend. Yeah. And I think our we have to come to terms in Chicago and the media has to do this. I don't want any person to die in Chicago. And if I could wave a magic wand and stop all the shootings and all the violence, I would do it in a heartbeat. But we have to come to terms that we have some endemic violence issues in Chicago and that no matter how much policing we have thrown at it, the best we've had in the last 10 or 15 years is like 438 or 485 murders. That's not a success. And I think part of the problem we have in Chicago is if we try new things and there's a violent weekend like we just had a week or two ago, they all blur now, that's going to be the end because the politicians and the media are going to be calling for the end of the, 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 the study because it isn't working. Yeah. Well, you know what they say, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, right? And that's what we seem to be doing in terms of the way we're managing our crime problem. Yeah, I happen to think that our violent crime problem here in Chicago is really unique and different, right? I mean, I think that, it's, you know, the nature of the structure of the city, the neighborhoods of the city, it's just, you know, the systemic, you know, racism, all of it. It's just, I think it's, it's endemic to, to Chicago and we've got to figure out how to fix it. There's just no question. I would, I would really, I agree with that. And I would really love a um a war on poverty in chicago mm-hmm. someone to come out and say we're going to spend a billion dollars investing in the south and west side over the next 10 years and mm-hmm. let's see what the elimination of poverty poverty on the mass scale in these communities does for public safety yeah um, i mean i know i know that's you know part of the mayor's platform and so you know i'm hoping that she's going to be able to make some change in that area so i hope so too let me tell you Sharon Fairley, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be up in the next few weeks. We have uh, in the next couple of weeks a discussion coming up about the Chicago police. It is not a single database. It is not a gang database. It is a variety of uh, databases that collect information on gangs. We just had an audit of it from the 
inspector general's office. We're going to talk to a community activist and a lawyer that fought to end that, even though it's only semi-ended, I guess, according to uh, former police or superintendent Beck, it's, it's coming back. So we'll be talking about that. We have other people coming on that we'll let you know through our Facebook page. Sharon, once again, thank you so much. Everyone will be back next week from 12 to 1. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, guys. I would like to thank Sharon for sitting down with us to discuss her ideas for police reform in Chicago. These are vital conversations that need to be had. However, what Chicago needs more than ever is for our political leaders to summon the courage to do what they know needs to be done. Short of massive restructuring of the city's finances to address rampant intergenerational poverty in black and brown communities in Chicago, I fear no real progress is going to be made. The change we need cannot occur without the mayor and the city council eliminating the king of all corruption in our city, tax increment financing districts or TIFs. All Chicagoans should know, whenever you see a crane working on a site where there's a building going up, know that there's a really good chance that our political leaders are using taxpayer dollars to subsidize the cost of that construction. Of course, taxpayers are not benefiting in the profits. Thank you all for listening. Please remember that our Facebook Live series occurs every Wednesday from 12 to 1 p.m. Central. Also, we are regularly posting to our YouTube channel with original content. If you have ideas about future guests for this podcast or our Facebook Live interview series, please drop us a line at pod at chicagojustice.org or post to our Facebook page. We will be back with another episode soon.